All right, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 3, continuing on in our study in the book of Philippians. I want to talk to you today about the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father God, we're thankful for your word. I pray you'd speak to us now in these few moments as we look at these uh, these few verses, I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord. Help me, Father, today to preach only what I should. I pray there's nothing in my heart or life that would hinder my usefulness to you, and I just pray the Holy Spirit would have control. Give boldness where it's needed. Give uh, kindness where it's needed. Help me, Lord, to say only those things I should and everything I should. And give us ears to hear. I pray, Father, that everyone is, that's in this room right now would just determine right now in the quietness of this moment that they're going to commit to listen, commit to allow the Word of God to speak to their hearts, and commit to respond as you would have them to. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Songwriter said, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. The Apostle Paul wrote in verse number 7 here, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I think throughout this passage, and maybe specifically there, I think that might be the key verse of this passage, but uh, I think throughout Paul is describing the only thing that matters, and that's Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters. He mentions several things here. Let's notice, first of all, in verse number one, that he says he is the only source of joy. He is the only source of joy. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, apparently he was repeating himself here. Uh, repetition is a vital tool for learning. So apparently Paul had told them this before. Of course, we know he's mentioned it several times here in, in, in just the first couple chapters of Philippians. But uh, he apparently was repeating, and he came right out and said, I'm not apologizing for repeating this instruction to you. 
Rather, he explained it was worth repeating, and he said it's worth repeating because it's a good safeguard to you to hear it again. I mentioned this in Sunday school this morning, but as a teacher uh, and preacher of the Bible, I'm encouraged by this. And I think all Bible teachers ought to be encouraged by this. We ought to bear in mind, repeating the truth of the gospel is not something to apologize for. Repeating the truths of the Bible is something that should not become tedious for us. It is a safeguard against other gospels making inroads in people's lives. We run into problems, I think, a lot of times as preachers and as teachers, uh, when we think we have to constantly come up with something new. When we think we have to come up with some new way to present the truth. When in reality, what we need to do is to just present the truth over and over and over and over again. So if you're privileged to preach and teach the Bible, uh, don't, uh, don't worry about that kind of thing and, and take it, take encouragement, uh, from what Paul said here. He said, I know I'm repeating myself. I ain't apologizing for it. You need to hear it again. Now the specific instruction that he's repeating here, I think, is right there in the, in the first part of the verse. Finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. I think he's unapologetically repeating that again. Throughout the study in Philippians, we've seen that's a key. That, that seems to be his theme, joy or rejoicing. We've already mentioned that 16 times in these four chapters, Paul mentions joy or rejoicing. And he encourages them and us toward that. And so here at the beginning of verse number 3, he repeats it again. And I want you to notice that he makes a very important distinction here. Uh, I didn't go back to look at the other places where he mentioned joy so far to see if if he said this before, but I noticed it here, and I think it bears pointing out. He talks to us here about uh, the fact that the joy he is encouraging the Philippians toward was a joy that is only found in the Lord. I think that phrase is important, in the Lord. Finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. I don't know if the Philippians needed this particularly, if they were having something that stressed them out, if there was some reason why they needed to be reminded over and over about the joy we have in the Lord. Uh, But I do know that most of us need that an awful lot, don't we? We have every reason to rejoice in the Lord, and yet we spend an awful lot of our time doing just the opposite. We spend an awful lot of our time getting all thumb-sucking and down in the dumps even though we have so much to rejoice in. I mean, think about this. If if we had even the tiniest glimpse, the tiniest glimpse of what is ours in the Lord, oh, boy, we'd we'd be leaving for joy, wouldn't we? If we could spend just a millisecond in the presence of the one who died for us, our joy would know no bounds. If we could be transported from this sin-deadened, sin-sickened planet onto the streets of the New Jerusalem for just a moment, Just a moment. The tears of joy would be flowing. It would be joy unspeakable and full of glory. We would not be able to contain ourselves because of the joy that uh, would be flowing. Paul repeatedly told these Philippians to rejoice because they needed to hear it over and over and over again. And I think we need to hear it over and over and over again in the midst of whatever pressed in on them and whatever presses in on us. Whether it's our world, our, our culture, our circumstance, They needed to be reminded again and again, and so do we, of what we have in the Lord, who we are in the Lord. It should be a cause of endless rejoicing and endless joy. One commentator wrote, The cure for discouragement is to rivet one's attention on the Lord and rejoice in him. And so the first thing Paul says here is that he is the source of our joy. We are to rejoice, but 
we can only truly rejoice when we understand what we have in the Lord. It's only and always because of him that we can do so. Application is obvious, isn't it? If you've never been saved, if you have struggled with joy, no sense looking for joy until you get the saved part down. You need to look for Jesus first. You need to be born again first. Don't go looking for joy any other place because that's where you're going to find it. And when you're in him, rejoice in it. That's the first thing he said. He is the source of our joy. Second thing he says is he is all you need. Nothing needs added. Look with me at verse number two. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Exclamation point. I think that exclamation point is inspired by God right there. It's, this, is a, this is a place where Paul has gone from this high, high of talking about rejoicing in the Lord because of all that we have in Jesus. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He goes down to this somber, dark place now. Beware of dogs. Beware of uh, evil workers of the mutilation. Now, he was warning them against certain people. He was warning them against the legalists who taught during that time that obeying the law and being circumcised was necessary uh, for salvation. This crowd was a constant problem for, for the Apostle Paul and really for the early church. Uh, we know that the gospel is uh, that we are saved by faith alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone, through faith alone. But these guys were always there to say, okay, that's all well and good. We believe in that stuff, Paul, but you also have to be circumcised as well. We believe that faith is all that is necessary to save you, except we think you also have to obey the Ten Commandments alongside of that. And, of course, that's not true. That's legalism. And Paul fought, about it, fought against it all the time. Now, you know me, anytime I come up against a passage where people would say legalism is what's being described there, and I think this is one of those, I always feel the need to clarify. Legalism is one of those words that I struggle with that I don't like because legalism is a word that is misused. It's a word that also doesn't appear in the Bible, by the way. The concept does, but the word never does. But legalism is a, descri- is a term that really describes what these guys were doing. They were adding some requirement or requirements to the truth of the gospel. They were saying something other than placing faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone was necessary in order to be saved. And that's the only proper way to use that term legalism. You have to have that phrase in there, in order to be saved. You have to do this in order to be saved. If you're saying that, then I'll go along with you. That's legalism, and that's something that the Bible fights against and Paul fought against here. It's not legalism to teach that Christians should live holy lives. That's not legalism at all. That believers should turn from sin. That's not legalism. That followers of Christ should strive always to live the Ten Commandments. All of the Ten Commandments. And that followers of Christ should strive always to live up to the standards Jesus set in the Sermon on the Mount. That's not legalism. It's sadly common to hear Christians say, don't tell me a bunch of rules and regulations to follow. Or to cry legalism whenever the preacher preaches Such things. But that's not legalism. That's just Bible. We're supposed to do those things. It becomes legalism when we add that little phrase, in order to be saved. Then it becomes legalism. That's what these guys were teaching. They they were saying keeping the law, being circumcised, were requirements for salvation. And I cannot wait to get to heaven just to meet Paul. I mean, just, just this guy. 
He was, he was a man's man. No, he did not pull any punches here. He unhesitatingly told his readers to, uh, the truth about these guys. He told them what he really thought of them. It seems to be thought, I think a common thought maybe, that for a preacher to stand up and say things, unkind things, about other preachers or other religions, well, that's not very becoming in ministers. Uh, if I were to stand up here today and say something like, you know, uh, Catholicism is not really biblical Christianity, and you should turn away from that, uh, you would be offended. Some would be offended at that. And I am saying that, by the way. If I were to stand up here today and say something like, you know, the health and wealth uh, preachers, the prosperity gospel preachers like uh, like uh, Joel Osteen or, or women like uh, Joyce Myers who preach that sort of thing, uh, they're preaching a false gospel. And you ought not to listen to them. You ought not to read any of their books. You ought, if you have books, throw them out. If I were to say that to you, some would say, well, that's not very becoming, preacher, to say unkind things about these other people. Why, they're just trying to preach the gospel to the best of their ability. Well, I am saying it to you because it is true. These things are, these are people that you ought not to, ought not to listen to. And listen again here to Paul. He called them dogs. Dogs. He called them evil workers. He called them mutilators. He said they were mutilating the gospel by insisting on mutilating the flesh. And he said in no uncertain terms, beware of them. These guys preached a false gospel. They taught that something more than uh, the work of Christ on the cross was necessary in order to be saved. And that's a lie. What Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. What Jesus did on the cross was enough to forgive all of my sins and all of yours. What am I going to add to that? What are you going to add to that? What possible good work do you have that could possibly improve upon what Jesus did on the cross? You can't top it. The answer is nothing. There is nothing to add to the finished work of Christ. No good works. No legalistic requirements for salvation. Nothing. And he said here, those who teach otherwise are liars, and they need to be rejected. So he has said, Jesus is the source of your joy. He has said he is all you need. Nothing needs to be added. Finally, he said he is what you need. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And I think this is Paul's main point. Jesus is the only thing that matters. Look again at verses, well, never mind. I'll get to that in a minute. He said he is the only thing that matters. Paul had trusted in all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, he talks about that in verses 4 through uh, 6, I think, 4 through 6. Uh, he had trusted in all kinds of things in the past, but now he said he knew better. He had learned. He had turned his back on everything but Christ and found that trusting now in Christ alone, by faith alone, was all that he needed. Those things seemed so worthy once, the things that he had believed in. Now he rejected them completely. And I think his point to us is that we need to do the same. We need to turn from anything and everything in which we might trust for our salvation and turn entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone by faith. In verses 4 through 6, Paul made the point that if there was ever a man who could be justified by his good works, his legalism, if you will, it was him. Sounds like he's bragging there in those verses, doesn't it? But he really wasn't. That's not his point. He wasn't bragging. He was listing all the things in which he had once placed so much hope 
only to point out that he no longer trusted in those things because he had found something that was so much better. Let me read something here. This is a little bit lengthy, but I want to read this person's explanation of what Paul was saying here in these verses. He said, and I quote, Seven advantages listed in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 demonstrate what Paul used to have in the flesh, but what he later counted as loss for Christ. Two kinds of advantages are enumerated. First are those things which the apostle had by birth, apart from his choice. Four of these are listed. Circumcision, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. Next, he named those privileges which he voluntarily chose, being a Pharisee, being a persecutor of the church, and having a flawless external record of legalistic righteousness. Circumcision was named first probably because it was a big issue with the Judaizers. Paul's specific time, the eighth day, stressed that he was not a proselyte or an Ishmaelite, but a pure-blooded Jew. Paul was of the people of Israel, which describes his heritage. His His parents were both true Jews, unlike some of the Judaizers. He could trace his family lineage all the way back to Abraham. He was a true member of the covenant people. He was also a Benjamite, from which tribe came Israel's first king. This tribe had a special place of honor and was viewed with great esteem. Even after the kingdom was disrupted, the tribe of Benjamin remained loyal to the house of David. Hebrew was Paul's native tongue. Unlike some of the Israelites, he did not adopt Greek customs. He knew thoroughly both the language and customs of the people of God. He was a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, a member of the strictest sect among his people. In addition to the law of Moses, the Pharisees added their own regulations, which in time were interpreted as equal to the law. What greater zeal for the Jewish religion could anyone boast of than that he persecuted the church? Paul did this relentlessly before his conversion to Christ. No Judaizer could match such zeal. In legalistic righteousness, Paul also excelled. In fact, in his own eyes, he was faultless. Faultless. That's what he said he used to trust him. But then we come to verse number 7, and this is fascinating. Verse number 7, he said, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. One commentator that I consulted as I was preparing this said that that little word, but, at the beginning of that verse, is the most important word in all of chapter 3. Because that but marks something that happened in Paul's life. It marks Paul's experience on the road to Damascus when Paul first met Jesus Christ and learned what God's righteousness really was. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, I I used to trust who I was as a Jew, but, but the things I trusted in then I have turned away from. I've tossed them aside. He was saying, I used to trust my own good deeds and righteous life, but those things that I used to trust in. I have counted all those things lost for Christ. Now I trust only in Christ. Only in Christ. And I realize that all those things I trusted in before are nothing but rubbish. And that's an interesting word. In the King James Version, it's translated dung, which is an accurate translation. Manure. Other words you can think of that go there. He says, uh, there's only one thing that mattered. And not only is that little word but important there in what he's saying, but that, so too is that phrase, I have counted loss. What things were gained to me, those, these I have counted loss for Christ. 
And without getting overly technical, let me just say that, that what he's saying there is that was something, he was describing something that had taken place in the past but was still true today. He's indicating a decision made in the past, still in effect in the present. And what was that decision? That was a decision that took place on the road to Damascus. That was a decision when he turned to Christ on that day. And he had never stopped trusting him since. I've been visiting with members of, of the church, attenders of the church now for the entirety of 2019. When I, the elders asked me to come on full-time a year ago, I thought it would be a good idea to do that. Uh, it would be a good idea to just kind of feel out the pulse of the church. And so sent out invitations to everybody. I think most of you should have received those, and we're trying to wrap that up here soon. But during that time, during those visits, uh, I have been making a systematic effort to ask certain questions. Again, just to try to feel the pulse of the church and of the people within the church. One of the series of questions that I asked have to do with what you think about the church itself. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Those kinds of things. Another series of questions that I ask has to do with your family. How can we pray for you? How can we help you in those ways? And then there's a, another series of questions that I ask, which has to do with your personal walk with the Lord. And, and, and the very first question I ask under that heading is, are you saved? Would you share your testimony with me? Would you help me to remember that? And you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to me how people answer that question differently. Some people, when you ask them, are you saved, tell me your testimony, can respond with a date. I, for example, say I was saved on May 12, 1970. I freely admit to you that I had to go to somebody and ask what that date was. But I, now, now that I've done that, I can remember the date. Others don't necessarily remember the date. They might say something like, uh, I was saved when I was five years old. I remember I was sitting on my living room couch, and my mother prayed with me and led me to the Lord. Okay, so they remember the time. Others maybe don't remember even that much. Maybe they'll say something like, I was saved, at, I was saved in youth group one night when uh, I knelt and the Lord saved me. I was saved at uh, summer camp when uh, the preacher preached and I walked the aisle. Sometimes I get an answer like this, though. Sometimes I'll get an answer that's something like, uh, I don't remember a time when I didn't trust Christ. I've always been saved. And I always, I, we've talked about this before, I always have to probe on that one. I always have to think about that one a little bit and dig a little bit deeper because the fact is nobody has always been a Christian. Nobody has never not been Christian. Uh, the Bible says clearly that we're all born lost and that we have to be born again in order to be saved. And so I'll dig a little bit deeper on that and ask if they remember a time when they realized they were a sinner in need of a Savior, if they remember realizing their need and turning to Christ, if they remember such a turning taking place, even if they don't remember the exact date and time, if they can say yes to that. Then my next question usually is something like this. And what are you trusting now? Okay, so there was a time. You do remember there was a time. What are you trusting now? And I've never yet had anybody say anything other than, well, I'm still trusting in Jesus Christ. Because once we're saved, we're always saved. Once we came to that place in the past where we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, well, that's just going to carry on right up to the present. And we're still going to be trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's what Paul was saying here. He's saying, I met Jesus that day on the Damascus Road. I turned away from everything else I had trusted in, and I trusted in him alone. And I'm still trusting in him today. He had made this decision in the past, and it was still true in the present. I have to ask you this morning in this group, can you say that? 
Can everybody in this room say that? Has there been a time in the past when you trusted and you know that you came to a place where you knew you were a sinner and needed to be saved and turned to Jesus? And are you still trusting in him alone today? That's what Paul was talking about here. And note the shift in values that took place when, when, when that happened. Look at verse number 8. He said, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul said his past had included so much that he would have said had value. We would have said they had value. So many good works that he had done in the past that we would, we would have praised him for. So much desire to serve God. We would have thought that was all good. So much patriotic and religious fervor. We would have said that's all great. He said, but then there came a day I met Jesus. And now I realize that stuff had zero value. Rubbish. Useless. Before meeting Jesus, I can imagine that the Apostle Paul might have had a list that he kept. He might have had a piece of paper that on that, at the top of the piece of paper, might have said, things I'm trusting in to get me to heaven. And it would have been this great big long list, all those things that were mentioned on there. But then came that day along the Damascus Road, and he met Jesus Christ face to face. And after he was cured of the ensuing blindness, and he began to think about these things, I imagine he went back and he looked at that list. And I imagine he took a pencil and he crossed that out. And he wrote rubbish across the top of that list. And then he wrote beside it, the one I'm trusting to get me to heaven. And under there he wrote one thing, Jesus Christ. Christ alone. You might want to underline verses 8 and 9 in your Bibles because it's such an important passage. One commentator called verse 9 there a summary of the entire book of Romans. He said verse number 9 deals with the entire heart of salvation in one verse. It says that my righteousness, no matter how good I think it may be, is not sufficient. It's like Billy Graham preached last week. We just don't weigh enough. We don't weigh enough. The only righteousness that is sufficient is Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to me by faith. My sins were imputed to him on the cross when he died, and his righteousness was imputed to me when I knelt at that cross and trusted him. All the righteousness I thought I had before... Not what I trust now. I now know that the only righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Isaac Watts sang of these truths. He said, No more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Now for the love I bear his name. What was my gain? I count my loss. My former pride I call my shame and nail my glory to his cross. Yes, and I must and will esteem all things but loss for Jesus' sake. Oh, may my soul be found in him and of his righteousness partake. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying to find Christ is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. To find Christ is to find the one whose value surpasses that of anything else in the world. To find Christ is to find everything. Jesus spoke of this very same thing in a parable. He said again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He is worth giving up everything for. He is worth tossing aside 
every other means of reaching God and trusting in Him alone. The only thing that matters. And so as we ponder these truths, as we think about what Paul's saying here in these first few verses, we have to ask a couple of questions. The first question would be this. How is your joy? We've asked that question a lot in this study. How is your joy? If it's only found in the Lord, as Paul says here, and you're joyless, I encourage you, stop seeking joy. Start seeking Jesus, because that's where you're going to find it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. That's where you're going to find joy. And then the second question has to be this. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in in who you are? Are you trusting in what you have done in your own good works, as Paul used to do? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how special you think you are, how righteous you think you are. There's a word here that Paul uses for your very best works, and it's, in the New King James Version, it's rubbish. In the King James Version, it's a little rougher word. But that's what he says about your righteousness. It's true. It's not going to get you to heaven. Are you trusting in Christ alone by faith alone? That's the only thing that matters and the only way you'll ever see heaven. Acts chapter 27 is one of the most exciting book, uh, passages in the Bible. Acts chapter 27 tells of Paul's uh, shipwrecked sea journey on his way to Rome. Wonderful, wonderful story. You need to read it. It's just a great picture. His ship was beset at sea by a storm of tremendous intensity. It was going down. It was sinking. It was all over. And what a picture that is, by the way, of our life without Christ. We are sinking. We are lost at sea. We are about to go down forever. Well, there was a moment there when the crew realized they needed to get rid of some stuff. And I never really thought about that until I was studying this message. But uh, there's a verse that says, because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Acts chapter 27. I never thought about this, but, but think about it. Stuff that they had thought they needed to navigate the sea were now realized to be useless to them. And so they chucked it overboard. And so I would challenge you today, if you're trusting in those kinds of things. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus, whatever that stuff is, it can't save you. Throw it overboard and start trusting Jesus. He's the only one who can. And it's the only thing that matters. 